And now I invite you to take a Bible, though, to open it to the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, where we are beginning a new series today that will take us from now till Thanksgiving, walking through this book in the Bible. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, if you're using one of these Bibles provided for you in the pew, you'll find it on page 553. I'm just going to go through it one chapter at a time, and as you're turning there, if you've never read this book before, it is, for me, one of the books I encourage people the most to read if they've never grown up in an environment where they went to church or they read the Bible and their whole perception is simply, why would I read something that's so old? What possible relevance could something written a couple thousand years ago have to me in my situation and anything I'm dealing with in the moment of today? And for me, the book in the Bible that best overcomes that is to have someone read Ecclesiastes. Because whether someone likes it or hates it, when they read it, they say, that feels like that could have been written yesterday or last week. All of the tension within it, all of the emotion, the back and forth, the highs and lows, it just seems like I'm reading someone's journal that very well could have been written yesterday. And so it overcomes that to say the issues that we wrestle with in our heart and why do things happen and is there a larger purpose in the world? Where is God in the midst of everything that we see and experience? How how do we interpret what God is up to? Uh, Ecclesiastes is the best place to go. But I'll also tell you, uh, part of the, the diversity that is within the book makes it a really puzzling book. And so some people read it and say, I never want to read that again, though. It's, it's pretty dark. It's, it's just constant critique in it. I don't, I don't hear much uh, of an encouraging message within it. And other people appreciate its critique. Uh, they're, they're more prone, like me, in my personality to appreciate understatement and sarcasm and satire as effective ways of communicating. And so I'm drawn to it. It's actually my favorite book in the Bible. And so I'm really excited to preach it, but not because I believe it's fundamentally a dark book. Uh, What we've read in our scripture reading from Romans 15 about the God of hope is what I believe is revealed in this book as well. But it is a very honest look and critique about what is the world as we live in it and as we experience it. So now we'll read the first chapter in its entirety and then we'll seek to unpack it. Ecclesiastes 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. If there is a thing of which it is said, see, this is new, it's already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things. 
nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, I've been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I've applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. And that's where we'll stop. And so, yes, chapter one's a pretty dark passage. <laughs> but overall, what we have and what we're reading is uh, a message. Um, it's thought of as, as one whole, basically, sermon. So if you're looking for a New Testament equivalent to what we have here in Ecclesiastes, it'd be like the book of Hebrews. One large unfolding message. And here we have the person identifying himself as the the preacher or the seeker, and he has a message, and his chosen text that he's going to reflect on for the next 12 passages that he's going to expound on in detail is this repeated phrase in verse 2, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And then he's going to unpack that all the way to the end. And so the question is, if that's his basic message and the title of the sermon is All is Vanity, how do we end up at the end of chapter 12 if you did turn there and cheated before we got there? And he says, and so the conclusion of the matter is to fear God and to keep his commandments. So he makes this statement about the world as he sees it and the vanity of it. And the word there for vanity is actually the word for vapor just almost like steam, something that it's there, but if you tried to touch it, you wouldn't touch anything. You just would go right through it. And so that word is then described for us as vanity, that something appears to be there, but really isn't. It's just a show. It's just smoke and mirrors, is what he is saying. And so we have to unpack it a little bit to understand where he's going in chapter 12, but we're also aided by having within the scripture commentary on different parts of the Old Testament from authors in the New Testament as one of our ways of trying to understand what what really is the basic point of this message. When he's saying all is vanity, it's pretty clear, the vanity of everything. He's not ruling anything out. He repeats it and repeats it again so that he's saying basically, if you think I'm missing something, no, 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 I'm saying that too. And that, whatever else just popped into your head, that. No, it's, there is this sense of the vanity of everything. The frustration that we experience in our human life over everything. So I invite you to go to the book of Romans in the New Testament in chapter 8, where the Apostle Paul uses this same word translated in Ecclesiastes as vanity is, for most of us, translated as futility here in Romans chapter 8. So this is on page 944. Romans chapter 
8, 944, which you could not find a more encouraging chapter in the Bible than Romans chapter 8. You just couldn't. But here's something that Paul says in beginning of verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. That's the word. Could say vanity. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemptions of our body. For in this hope we were saved. So here, as Paul uses this term, he also applies it to the entirety of creation. That all of creation experiences this futility, this frustration, this vanity. And if we're prone to say, well, wait a minute, that just can't be the case. No, that, that is not true. That must apply only to people who don't know who God is and who don't believe in God. He goes on to say, no, no, no. And this is still true of us. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we too are groaning inwardly just like the creation is groaning. So the point of saying the vanity of everything is not to say that everything is as bad as it could possibly be and there's no good thing in the world, but it is making the point that there is nothing in the world that has not been affected by the consequences of the fall and the sinfulness of this world. There is nothing, no person, no situation, no even a larger organization in the world that is not in some way experiencing the ramifications of the fall. All of creation experiences this sense of vanity. As Stan said in the prayer, we all have this sense that things aren't the way they should be. And they aren't even the way they could be. And why is that a universal human experience? That's what the preacher in Ecclesiastes is going to consider, this vanity of everything. And he does it as the person who, whether it's Solomon himself or someone who is clearly presenting from the perspective of the king over Israel, it doesn't matter which, but he's saying, think of Solomon at a minimum, the wisest of people, head over the nation, who prayed to God for wisdom, got it. And I'm telling you that even with all that wisdom and all the power that an individual human person could have had, I'm looking back on life and saying, there's still that vanity, and it's everywhere. It's not just the vanity experienced in poverty in the countryside. 
but in the height of power and authority, when everything is at my disposal, I look back and say, is this it? Is, is this all there is? And so we get this perspective of an older person looking back on life, having achieved the greatest that this life can offer to anyone. And his message is still the same. He doesn't say to everyone, now listen to me. There might be vanity in your life, but if you just figure out how to live life like me, then everything's great. No, the point of the sermon is to say, don't spend your whole life trying to get to where I am only to then find out there's just as much vanity here as wherever it is we happen to be. And so there, there is an aspect of it that it, it is a critique. It is a, a message that is calling for all of us to repent in some way. And most of us don't like feeling conviction, but it is really good that we together would hear from someone who has this perspective to warn us ahead of time and say, realize that there is vanity everywhere, in everything. And we experience that if we just look around the world today. And there's a variety of ways to kind of take a snapshot of where we are. And so in as many things as I list as examples, there's more things that could be said. But when you look around the world and we look at the refugee crisis that exists in this world today, one of the amazing things that we see is people who are willing to risk everything to make it to America. Their whole families put at risk in the uncertainty of travel at night or travel on rough seas where they're not sure of the integrity of even the structure that they're floating in rough waters in. And we've seen images over the past year of some of the consequences that that has brought about people who, from an external perspective, look upon America as the nation with the most amount of wealth and the most amount of opportunity. But internally, for those of us who are here, we see consistently in news reports that the level of pain that exists in this country is so much greater than we realize. And the level of distrust and uncertainty continues to grow. So at the political level, when we have two major candidates who right now, in an unusual way in our history, both have the highest unfavorable ratings together than any time we've ever had an election for that office, which means whatever happens in November, there's going to be a significant amount of people ticked off, mad. That's what it means, highly unfavorable really don't like this person. Kind of okay with this person, but I really don't like the alternative. And it goes, the numbers are almost identical in both directions. So that you hear from people all the time, I just don't even, I can't even understand how someone could vote for whatever. And then the next word, I can't even understand how someone could do this. And what you're having expressed is this, I can't understand the person I'm living next to. I'm not wondering if there's life out, you know, in the galaxy somewhere, and maybe if we find that life, if we'll be able to communicate. It is, 
I don't understand what parallel universe we're functioning in that we see things so differently about where we are and where we're going. It is still true that more than 60% of Americans have less than $1,000 in a savings account, which means they have zero financial margin for any emergency that would come up. More than 60% with almost no financial margin for the washing machine to break, the refrigerator to break, in my house, the air conditioning to be broken. Right now, It happened, we got it serviced, and then we said, well, it's going to be September soon, right? So, we, I mean, let's just hope the weather cools off. That hasn't panned out, so we have to do something about it. Where was I when I said that? Yeah, the futility, right? I can't even remember what I was saying about that. So the typical, the average American experience that they don't have financial margin for what would otherwise be fairly normal things to come up, let alone catastrophes to come up, significant things that none of us, however big our savings account is, would would not necessarily have the resources to be able to handle it. But the rest of the world thinks we're all insanely wealthy (laughs) and that this is the place worth sacrificing and coming to. If we look at the, the substance abuse problem we have in our culture, which just two, three days ago, the story mainly that the whole country was talking about was out of East Liverpool, Ohio, which is only an hour, hour and a half away from here, where the police said, we need the community to see what we see. And then there was a whole controversy as to whether that was appropriate or not and whether the child's face should be blurred or not. But their point was to say, we're not sure that enough people know what we know, and see what we see. But then if you read the the Beacon Journal this morning, you'll have read that there were 24 overdoses in Akron on Friday night alone, eight of whom died from it. If we look at the statistics of how many people have suffered abuse or assault, And they tell us it's about one in three as it relates to women in our society that have experienced abuse or assault from another person. Say, what? Especially when those statistics are so hard to really get accurate because there's such a level of shame in reporting the things that happen. And so going off of the information we have, the picture's not great. It's horrible. It's awful. But also realizing there's a profound psychological and emotional component that tells us our statistics might not even be fully accurate yet. I remember hearing the testimony of a couple. They, uh, he, he's a pastor in Nashville um, who I enjoy reading and following his blog, and he was open that he and his wife were married for over 10 years before she felt comfortable enough to tell him about the abuse that she'd experienced. But even after she told him, it took him five more years to be comfortable to say the same thing. And it didn't make sense to him. He said, you know, she finally opened up. She disclosed what she'd experienced. So there would have been no shame for me to say, well, this is, but something kept me five more years from being willing to talk about things that had been experienced. And so when we look at that, again, there's sort of the external expectation of what people perceive 
as the land of the free and the home of the brave. And there's this increasing internal reality of frustration, of pain, that is at a very, very profound level. And so part of what the current political climate is tapping into is you have two basic options of who you want to blame for it. So if you blame Washington, you'll vote one way, and if you blame Wall Street, you'll vote another way. But you're given two fairly consistent messages that are responding to the level of pain and anger that is in the world. Now, that's not a critique on either side of the thing. That's just taking a sort of a pulse of where we are and what is being experienced in our world today. That the writer, though thousands of years ago, if he were here today and say, man, there's so much vanity and it seems to touch everything. And some of that comes from our unrealistic expectations of life. The, the most popular cartoon in my home right now is Paw Patrol. If you don't have little ones, you don't know what Paw Patrol is. But Paw Patrol is on Nickelodeon Junior, and it's Adventure Bay and Mayor Goodway. Anytime she has a problem, she pulls out a device and she calls the Paw Patrol. And there's a policeman Paw Patrol, and there's a fireman Paw Patrol, and there, there's a whole team of people. And when the mayor needs help, the mayor just pushes the button, they all come. And they never run out of resources, and they can always do exactly what's needed to be done, and the situation is resolved by the end of the episode. And that's how they have to make the cartoon. Because if they made the cartoon like it really happens in real life, no kid would sit there and watch the cartoon. Because it would be uh, Chase, the, the police Paw Patrol, who'd be dialing up the mayor and saying, Mayor, we need more resources. We don't have enough cars. We don't have enough uh, bulletproof gear. We don't have enough officers to help deal with what we're dealing with. And then Marshall, the fire truck one, would call in and say, hey, we, we, our truck broke down. We need a new truck if we're going to be able to go and handle the fire. And then she'd say, well, we're going to have a council meeting, and so I'll make sure I add it to the agenda of the meeting, and we'll see if we can vote for it. And then after the meeting, the message would come, oh, we forgot to add it to the agenda. We'll talk about it next month. And every kid would go crazy. <laughs> No kid would watch that show. But that's part of why we go crazy in adulthood. Because we're like, is that really how it works? You mean they don't just have infinite supply of resources to be able to do what it is they need to do and they just can't fix every problem the moment it, it arises? No. And so none of us would pay attention to a new show that talked about the Ways and Means Committee in the House of Representatives. Just bored out of your mind. But it's one of the most significant committees for how things get done in this country in real time. How do we move resources to problems? Well, yeah, it's not entertaining. And so many of our sources of information which present themselves as news sources are actually in the entertainment business. And so when you go to an entertainment industry thinking you're being informed, you think you know things that you don't know. And the preacher in Ecclesiastes would say, that's vanity. And then the irony that some of the best news sources are actually in the entertainment industry. I was talking about this with someone before, uh, before service today. The current President Obama said that in the last election, the most serious interview he was given in his re-election bid for the highest office in the nation was by Jon Stewart in Comedy Central in The Daily Show. It was the hardest interview he had to sit through. He got drilled. 
So wait a minute. I thought we had news sources that tried to hold us accountable for information and news that existed, and we had an entertainment industry that just tried to make us laugh. And we feel this sort of frustration. Why why is that happening? It, It touches everything, but here, just as much, the writer of Ecclesiastes would apply all of this, not just to the world out there, but he would apply it to the religion of his day. See, some people, when they read the book of Ecclesiastes, they see the phrase under the sun, and they think that what that means is when that, that's applying to non-believers. So the vanity of everything when you don't believe in God. But if you believe in God, you would find out, well, there's meaning in everything. But that's not, you can't read Ecclesiastes that way. He points just as much his critique to the religious expressions of his day. He's the height of his own nation. He has seen how accumulated power and authority, even in the temple, has been put for purposes that you would say, why is that going on? And if you talk to most Christians, you'd say, why don't, why don't more Christians get along better? Why are very few people excited to go to a church meeting? And then when churches try to do things together in partnership, why is it such hard work to get churches then to work together and do things? But anyone who's committed to doing that, and I have someone who could add a huge amen today to this, would say, it is a lot harder than you think it would be or ever should be to get churches to work together. Man. And the writer of Ecclesiastes would say, see, that's vanity. <laughs> that's, it shouldn't be that way. Because we're affected by the fall and our own limited perspectives and our own sinfulness, not just in our rebellion against God, but so many times just as much and even more in our efforts to try to coerce God or to manipulate God. And there's many bad reasons for which we can actually be religious. And that's where Paul has the same perspective as the writer of Ecclesiastes, because he not only says his creation affected the world and everything in it, but when Paul looks back on his own testimony, which was a story of profound religious zeal, in Philippians he says, I look back on all of it and I say, that was rubbish, that was garbage, that was horrible. So he's even being more dramatic, right? If, if the preacher of Ecclesiastes is saying it's vapor, so it's smoke, you can't touch it. Paul is saying, like, you can see the smoke and a skunk just sprayed. Like, run from it, it stinks. And what he's reflecting on when he's saying that is not his running from God, but his attempt to try to earn God's favor, to be the most zealous person, the most pure and that's something that we also know, which is one of, the thing, one of the reasons that people who don't even believe in God still love the book of Ecclesiastes, because Ecclesiastes equally spreads that critique. And some of the vanity that we experience the most, we experience it in religious expression throughout the world and in our own hearts. And that's as we think of then his message, as he talks about this vanity, as he looks about the cycle of nature in chapter one and the experiences that are happening. And he looks out and he says, you can just look at a tree that you look at and say, man, that's been there for well over 100 years and I think it's gonna be around for 100 years after I'm gone. 
all the effort I do, everything I give, everything I pour myself into, that tree's been around before and it's going to be around after. The rain's going to fall, the streams never fill. As he goes through all these cycles of nature, he, he, he looks at them and just says, they just have a way of keep on going and maintaining when, whether we're ready for them to keep on going or not. And that's how we experience time often. We have experiences where we wish just everyone would stop. Right? I mean, 15 years ago this day, if you were glued to a TV watching what was happening on 9-11 in other parts of the city, part of you thought, is this day ever going to end? And then the next day came and you're like, well, should another day have come? Like, is it okay to go out to breakfast now with my family? Is it okay to have joy and, or go back to school or go back to work or just this sense of, and this way of time, just continuing to, yeah, look, the sun's gonna come up and it's gonna go down and it's gonna come up and it's gonna go down. Whatever the statistics, whatever the information, when we look at those various realities of nature, we see this frustration in it. When I, when I think of my youngest, just at sometimes just like wanting nothing more than a banana and just going to town on it. You just look at it and you're like, maybe there is something about this, like we come from monkeys or something. Because there is just this like amazing pleasure that is experienced. But then you're like, wait a minute. If he was a monkey, he already would know how to climb up a tree and get the thing himself. So why did we go backwards in our ability if we're going forwards? Like I still have to get this for him. That doesn't make sense. But that's what the writer is saying. That's as he's preaching. He's looking out at the rhythms of nature and the things that are going on and saying there's a frustration in it. But he's doing that and talking about the vanity of everything, life cycles, creation, religion, not to end there, but then to show us what the real alternative is. And the alternative to the vanity of everything is the certainty of hope. And that's what Paul said in Romans. So that the basic message is so much of what you see and experience, taste, touch, and feel, one day you discover is not where the real substance lies. But hope, as defined in Hebrews chapter 11, when Paul says faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the certainty of things not seen. He's saying so much of what you see is fleeting. It's passing. It's here today and gone tomorrow. But what the Bible offers us is hope that what we experience and know to be true and what we groan for is what's really real. And we can have certainty about that. One of the ways C.S. Lewis talked about it was it's, it's just, if you go from the perspective of the fact that I'm thirsty means there must be water. The fact that I'm hungry means there must be food. The fact that I have these longings. I don't long for things I don't need. I don't long for things that aren't necessary for my future. And so if one of the things we're all longing for, we're all hungry for and thirsty for, is a world that is not like this, then he says, because of that groaning and because of that longing, you can have certainty about what the scriptures tell you is the hope of eternal life. Because why would you even desire it? Why would you crave it? Why would you thirst after it? 
if it wasn't real. And in our hearts, we do desire it. And so he says that all of creation was subjected to futility in hope. And that that's how we understand faith. Living by faith is living in a way to say we believe that what we cannot see right now is more certain than what we do see. What we cannot see in love, in grace, in who our creator is, is more certain than the things that we do see. I mean, just think about your experience of looking in a mirror over a period of time or looking back on old photos, right? So you see a photo of yourself when you're a kid and then you see yourself when you're a teenager and then you see yourself now. One of the things you do is like, man, what was I wearing or what was I doing? What was everybody wearing back then or something? Which is another evidence of the vanity of everything. But you also look back and say, there's something in me changing. I don't look the same in any of those, but I'm still me. There's something about me that isn't changing. Who I am at the deepest level, which is what the scripture says of you and I have a soul that does not change, that can grow and adapt, but our body is not telling the whole story. And that's what we believe. The world is not telling the whole story. There is a truth that is unseen, that is certain. And because of it, we can have hope in the future of what God promises us. And then we see in this chapter as well, and I'll just run through these, because I've already alluded to most of these here as we've been going, but this person, the preacher, there's an equality of his critique. In the next chapter, he talks about pleasure, but in this chapter, he talks about wisdom, and he's critiquing himself. And that's another thing. So many of us will say, you know, we don't like being around judgmental people. But if we probe a little bit deeper, what we really don't like is when people can only be judgmental in one way. But if you're ever around someone who can really criticize themselves just as easily as they can criticize anyone else, you don't mind it. You're like, you know what, that's that's actually refreshing. When you're around someone who can only point out what's wrong with everyone else and never what's wrong with themselves, then you'd say... Yeah, sounds like you think you have all the solutions to the world and you know what everyone's doing. When someone can point their critique just as much at their own efforts and themselves, you find yourself more invited to say, I'd like to hang out with you a little bit more. I'd like to talk to you. And that's what this book does. It gives us this honest perspective where he talks about his own pursuit of wisdom to try to know everything that can be known. And he says, you know what, I realized that I had the wrong expectation. That when I prayed for wisdom and to have it and had it in a way that superseded anyone who'd lived in the world before me, God still never gave me the wisdom that is only ever his. God still never gave to Solomon the wisdom to know why everything happens and how to explain it to everyone. In other words, God didn't make him God. (laughs) And God has never promised to any of us that that's what he would do. That's not the type of wisdom that he wants to give us. When he had Adam and Eve in the garden and said, here, eat all of these trees, but this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat that one, just trust me, believe me. Don't touch that one. Enjoy all of this. And they said, well, that's kind of what we want. 
We want the ability to know. And he's referencing that again here at the end when he talks about how his heart applied to know wisdom and madness. He longed to know goodness and evil. He longed to try to be like God. And there, our good and gracious Heavenly Father is saying, That's, I've never asked you to try to do that. I've never asked you to take my place. I've never asked you to try to figure out all the problems that exist in the world. I've never asked you to try to redeem the world. I see the futility. I see everything that's going on. But no one of you individually and even you together collectively are going to be the saviors of the world. And when the preacher can acknowledge that, it gives an audience of people who are willing to listen. And as Christians, we should be able to do that today that we can point people to hope yes we can but if they come to us thinking we've got everything figured out we know exactly why all bad things happen and what needs to go wow they will be profoundly disappointed but if we start with the acknowledgement that God is not asking us to be God that he alone is God that we're asked to be his followers that is where the beginning of real wisdom actually takes place This is the beginning of real wisdom if we start here and then read the rest of the sermon. That in everything else God is going to teach us and tell us, he is not going to give us his authority or his knowledge over everything that happens. He wants us to walk by faith. He wants us to trust in him and to live by hope in who he is and what he's promised us. So this is summarized in Proverbs chapter 3 and this is where we close. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. This is the beginning of wisdom. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are not you. Because we know that even on our best day, we are not prepared to tackle all of the struggles and all of the complexities that we experience in this world. And we thank you that you permit us and allow us to be completely honest about the struggles that exist in this world. That we can have our eyes wide open to everything we're seeing. That you're not calling us into darkness. You're inviting us into the light. But we know that as you shine that light, we see things that surprise us. We see things that scare us. We, we see things that remind us of just how limited we are. And so we pray, Heavenly Fathers, we think in our own hearts and in what our community experiences, what our nation experiences, what this world continues to experience, that you would help us to find hope that the groaning would be the very thing that draws us 
to you, to desire more, to desire better, to long for eternal life. But we confess we need your grace to do it. We can mess it up a thousand ways in trying to follow you. And so we need you. And so we pray, help us to not lean on our own understanding, but to trust you, to fear you, to turn away from evil. And Father, we trust that you will then heal our flesh. You will bring refreshment to our bones. So it's in your name we pray. Amen.